0: always great to come to see some familiar faces, to meet some new folks, and um, and this is a passage, this one that was just read from Luke chapter 7. I hope you'll keep it in front of you because I'm just going to have this one scripture here, but I'm going to refer to the whole story throughout the message. It's such a powerful story, and it, it, in it, Jesus imparts a spiritual principle that... I find myself in both my personal life and my ministry continually coming back to and pointing other people back to. And one of the ways that I have shared this over the years at Christ Community Church and also I do some uh, teaching over at Reformed Theological Seminary as an adjunct professor is through an analogy that I call the music and the dance. So I wanna start with, with that and just ask you to use your imagination a little bit, it's a very hypothetical story or analogy illustration. I want you to imagine a house in which people are living, some of whom are hearing and some are deaf. They're all living together in the same house. And you're watching, you're kind of an observer, and you see a young woman come into one of the big open common rooms and she pulls out her iPhone and You can see, you know, you can pretty much guess what she's doing, but what she's doing is she's finding some of her favorite music, and she hits play, she plugs in her earbuds, puts them in her ear, and she just stands there, and after a while, she just begins to respond to the music that she's hearing. She starts drumming her thigh, her body starts swaying, and then pretty soon a big smile just blossoms on her face, and she just starts to dance. I'm not going to try to dance for you. But she does, if you can imagine. She just starts dancing uh, with this huge smile on her face. Her, her whole body is just responding to the beauty of the music that she's hearing. She's dancing beautifully and gracefully all around the room. And then another woman comes into the room, one of the deaf women, comes into the room and sees her and, and thinks to herself, that looks so cool, that looks so enjoyable, that looks so beautiful. I think I'll do it. She's not hearing the music, but she's watching someone who is, and so she begins to try. And at first, it's pretty awkward. It's pretty halting and not that graceful, but actually, you know, if she really pays attention and really tries very, very, very hard, after a while, she's kind of roughly moving in step with the other woman just by imitating her outward actions. And so now imagine a third person comes into the room, and sees these two women and maybe doesn't look that carefully to see that one of them's got the earbuds in and the other. It doesn't doesn't pick up on all that. What does that person see? Superficially, it looks like uh, the third woman is seeing two women who are doing exactly the same thing. But are they really doing the same thing? No. One woman is hearing the music, hearing the rhythm, the beauty of the complexity, the lyric, She's loving it, it's moving her, and everything she's doing outwardly, you know, yes, she has to move, she has to choose to move in response to it, and yet her movement is all in response to the music that she's hearing. And what is the other woman doing? She's simply trying to imitate and conform to the outward actions. Now, here's the point of the analogy. In the analogy, the dance is the life it's authentic Christian life. It is the life to which God calls us. It is the life of love for God and love for people and all of the details that the Bible unfolds as to what that love is supposed to really look like. That's the dance, the life. And the music, the music is the great, big, beautiful, redemptive message of the love and the grace that God offers us in Christ. Forgiveness, his presence, reconciliation to god where before we were estranged and cut off from him and empty and he comes into our life and he comes with grace and and love paul prays at, at the end of philippians chapter 3 that we would know the full dimensions of the height and breadth and length and depth of the love of christ that surpasses knowledge that we'd be filled up to all the fullness of god that's the music and here's the thing There are some churches, there's a kind of Christian teaching, and there's a way of that some people kind of try to live the Christian life where all the focus is always is only on the outward behavior. It's only always on the steps. It's only you know, there there are there's a kind of Christian teaching that's only saying, you know, you're out of step, you're out of line, you're not in rhythm, you need to get in step and it doesn't really care that mindset doesn't really care whether people are really hearing the music. And I think, if we're honest, as Christians, even as we go on living the life, sometimes we get focused on our steps alone and not on whether we're really hearing the music. But this life to which Jesus calls you, this life of discipleship, of following him, it isn't just listening to the music, and it's not just dancing, it's both. I like to put it this way, the God who choreographed the dance composed the music that he himself designed to go with it to empower and inspire the dance. And so, you know, if we go back to this analogy, the woman who's simply trying to do the outward thing, she's only focused on watching her feet instead of hearing the music, She's never going to dance as well and she's probably not going to enjoy it as much. She's probably going to be thinking, you know, this really isn't as much fun as it looked, And she might not sustain it as long. And so this story is one of many. As, As I have used this analogy in my own life, with my own struggles, uh, personal struggles, ministry struggles, challenges, temptations, and also as I've used it with others in pastoral counseling and discipleship, um, what I've seen is is that we have to continually, continually come back to it, and I've also seen that it's just all through the Bible. And I know Jeff and Tommy both, Pastor Jeff and Pastor Tommy, often bring this out in their preaching as they've been doing in the Gospel of Mark. I want you to see it in the story that we looked at today from Luke chapter 7. Because the principle at the heart of this story is that love for Jesus comes from a, a big view of the forgiveness that he gives you. In other words, at the end of the verse, it's, you know, he says, um, he who is forgiven little loves little. If you can apply my analogy to those verses, it's like saying, he who doesn't really hear the music and its beauty doesn't respond very beautifully or fully. And so that's the principle in this passage. It's that that devotion to Jesus and the life of discipleship comes from the realization of his grace for us. The interesting thing is if we ask each other, if we ask ourselves as Christians, well, what is grace? It's easy to define it. We can say the words and know the words. We can say grace is God's love that is undeserved and unearned, that is freely given to us in Christ through faith in him alone. That's, that's what grace is. But when you see in the stories like this what grace really looks like and how it works in real life and in the lives of real people, one of the things that you discover sometimes is that, that it's easy to miss the reality of grace. It's, maybe it's especially easy for religious people to miss the reality of grace and not really hear it and appreciate it. So here's how I see this in Simon. Simon, in this story, sometimes in your Bibles, it'll be introduced with the headline um, or like the editors of the Bible will insert a topic heading over it and they'll often say, this is the story of the sinful woman who anointed Jesus. But it's actually the story of two people. It's Simon and the woman. And Simon, he misses out on a lot of things that the woman gets. At the end of the story, Jesus says, the woman got Grace, salvation, forgiveness, peace, and love. Simon misses all that. And that's part of the message of this story too. You can be, you can be a very uh, spiritual person in some sense and miss the grace of God. You can be very religious. Luke is careful to tell us in the opening of the story that Simon was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were like the religious fundamentalists of their day. They were the guys that listened to John Piper and John MacArthur. They were not the guys that went out and partied hard on Saturday night and came limping into church on Sunday morning for the kids' sake or something. They were into it. And yet, at the end of the story, Simon misses out on the grace, the peace, the love, the salvation. The woman gets it. Not only can you be a very religious person in misgrace, you can be kind of sincerely interested in Jesus and Miss Grace, Miss the beauty of it and the bigness of it. We know that because there are only two Pharisees in the whole New Testament that we're told, at least, you know, I'd I love it if you find that I'm mistaken on this, but as far as I know, only two Pharisees who ever actually show some initiative to kind of sit down with Jesus and get to know him and understand him better. One is Nicodemus who comes to him at night in John chapter 3 because he he wants, he's interested, he's intrigued, but he doesn't want anybody else to know that he's interested in Jesus. The only other example of a Pharisee, one of these religious fundamentalist leaders in, in Israel, kind of reaching out to Jesus and showing a sincere interest in him is Simon who invites him to his house to a dinner. So he's got He's not only a religious guy but he's actually kind of interested in Jesus. And yet at the end he misses he misses out on the grace. He doesn't seem to get it. Not only that, not only can you be religious and sincerely interested in Jesus, a third thing I think if you look at it in the story is you can be right in front of witnessing in the life of someone else God's grace in a powerful way being given to and having an impact on that person and be and and completely miss what's happening in front of you. Years ago, I was at a church planting conference, and I met a young woman. I say young woman, she was in her early 30s, who told me an amazing story that really parallels this story. Her name was Stephanie. She's from Austin, Texas. And she'd lived a rough life by by her own description. She had been put in various foster homes and institutions since she was 13. At the age of 14, she was stealing cars. Um, At the age of 15, she had her first child. Um, Probably goes without saying she wasn't married at that point. She, She was constantly in trouble with the law, developed a drug addiction. At the age of 17, her boyfriend shot her in the face. He shot her with a small caliber handgun, and it went in right beside her, her left eye is circled around the back of her skull under the skin and lodged in her spine where they were never able to remove it. And she told me that she remembered the first time in her life ever that she ever remembered hearing anyone pray out loud for her was in the helicopter being airlifted to the hospital. And one of the technicians, one of the medical EMT guys or whatever was in the helicopter she didn't remember him she never met him didn't know who it was couldn't even see through the blood was praying out loud for her and she said that was like the first little seed of grace that dropped in her heart she she survived that shooting got out of the hospital and you know now she has children and she's got a drug she still was in that same life she still had a drug problem started working as an exotic dancer And she said, one, one afternoon, she was sitting in her living room, and her three or like three going on four-year-old daughter came excitedly running into the living room with one of these like high stiletto hilled platform clear plexiglass dancing shoes that she wore when she was working and her little girl comes running in and she says, "Mommy, I knew it." And her heart sank. Of course she was naive about what her (laughs) little girl might be able to put together from that shoe but she was for a second thinking the worst and then a little girl said you're cinderella and someday the prince is going to come and bring your other glass slipper and she said as odd as that may seem that was like the second little seed of grace and hope that started to think maybe there's a different maybe there's something more different better richer And God began, as he so often does, God who sovereignly sets his love on us in spite of ourselves as we're running from him and calls us by his Holy Spirit and draws us to himself because he set his heart us before the foundations of the world. He began to bring people into her life who would intersect her life and they would share the gospel with her until finally, to make a long story a little bit shorter, one day she pulled over to the shoulder of the road outside of Austin, Texas, sat in her car weeping for an hour and just praying and asking Christ to come into her life trusting him the best she knew how, kind of putting together everything that her Christian friends had shared with her and just saying, save me, Lord, and, and she felt from that day on that she had been born again. She started going to a little church, some co-worker, um, in a, in a, in, long story again, but let me forget that, but th- th- she started going to a little church, and, um, and, and they started talking about baptism, and she wanted to be baptized, and one of, the th- one of the reasons why is because even after she had first prayed to receive Christ, she was still kind of caught in that life, and something had changed in her, and she was growing and beginning to change, but she still had the, she still had the drug problem. She, she wasn't healed of her addiction overnight. She was still dancing. She said for, for several weeks or she would come home uh, at 4 in the morning and jump in the pool of the little motel that she was renting for, to live in, And and she didn't even know why she'd do it. She'd jump in with all of her clothes on, just jump in the pool and then climb out. and, and, And she later realized she was just trying to wash off the filth of the day. And so when she heard about baptism, she thought that's what I was trying to do for myself in the pool, I wanna be baptized. And so she went to the leaders of the church and they said, Stephanie, we won't baptize you until you get your tattoos removed. I don't know, I don't know if any church nowadays would still do this, this is like 25 years ago, but still, can you imagine? She showed me when she said that we were sitting in a booth with a bunch of other church planters and a whole group of people. She showed us her wrists, and on one it said redeemed, and on the other it said forgiven. She ended up finding a different church. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of church hopping, but I understand her move. She was baptized. And she later started a ministry for women who had been involved in the kind of life that she'd been involved in. It was called New Song Austin, New Song Austin. I share all that story, and I know it's kind of long, but it, it's a beautiful story of God's grace, and it reminds me of the woman in the story. But it also shows us that sometimes, like, the, I, like I think the leaders in that church, you can be looking right at amazing grace happening in someone's life, and maybe because you think there's something wrong, something's not 100%. You know, something doesn't fit how I like what's going down here that you completely miss what God is actually doing. And you can be thinking a lot and miss it because Simon is thinking. There's a place in it, if you look, I don't know exactly what verse is it is, but there's a place where it says, and Simon said to himself. <laughs> you know, that doesn't mean he said it out loud. That means he's thinking and he's so logical. He's got, He's not just being you know, you might think he's not just being purely emotional, like, you know, I don't like this kind of person. He's thinking, okay, Jesus is supposed to be a prophet. If he's a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this is. And if he knew what kind of woman is, and she's touching him like this, weeping and anointing his feet, he wouldn't let that happen because as a prophet who knew, you know, so there's this whole logic. And so to me, the, the, the fourth thing is that you can not only be religious and interested in Jesus and right in the presence of amazing grace, and you could be thinking a lot in your head and think you're being logical and miss completely how beautiful and amazing and awesome God's grace is. And there's a point where Simon, you know, he says to Jesus. um, You know, you you, or Jesus says to him, you know, I came into your house. It's not he says it to Jesus, it'd be I'd be clearer if I stood there and read my notes, right? but I'd rather speak to you this way today. It's Jesus who says to him, I came into your home and you didn't offer me water to wash my feet, she wet my feet with her tears, she anointed my feet with her oils, she hasn't stopped kissing me. And I can imagine, okay, here I'm imagining, I can imagine Simon saying, what do you want from me? I invited you to my house, I've given you a meal, you want me to kiss your feet? You want me to anoint you with oil? You want me to be crying? And the reality is, I think Jesus is is saying, yeah. Maybe not exactly that, but I want something like that. I want something real to be happening with us. One of the interesting asides here is that Simon seems to be especially disturbed by all the touching. She's touching him. If he was a prophet, he wouldn't let her touch him. What if that's exactly what Jesus is after, all the touching? Jesus actually wants to touch you powerfully with his amazing grace. And then he wants you to touch him passionately with your worship and your heart and your life and your love. And so I think, you know, the lesson of Simon is for us to just... Stop and kind of take, you know, do a, a, an evaluation, a, a, a fearless personal self-inventory of our hearts and ask ourselves, in spite of the fact that I may be religious and kind of interested in Jesus and I think a lot and all of that, am I really seeing how big grace is and I'm, am I letting it touch me and am I touching Christ back with my life and my love and my my passion and my devotion because of the way he's touched me because if all we do if all we do is come and hear excellent teaching from the bible and take really good notes and download all the information on the hard drives of our minds and you don't really weep ever and you don't really worship very passionately and you don't really love him then you might be a little too much like simon And you need to know that even religious people can completely miss the beauty of the grace of God and be deaf to the music. The lesson of the woman is that when we do realize the bigness and the beauty of grace, it's powerful. And I think that's important because sometimes, you know, excuse me, I keep sticking into the corner of that thing. Sometimes, sometimes people are afraid of grace. That if we were really to believe in this just total, lavish, unimaginably gracious grace, that it would lead to kind of sloppy living. And that's a valid concern. The Bible addresses that in many places. But this passage goes right to the heart of things. And what it shows us in the story of the woman is that Far from leading to sloppy living, it created a profound change in her. I mean, grace, you know, what, what, we, what he, we see in the woman is that grace, when truly received, doesn't cheapen your devotion to Jesus. It, it deepens it. It awakens a response of love. And Jesus makes this point in three ways in the story. First, in verses 41 through 43, he tells the story of the two debtors. And that's what everybody's familiar with. But just real simply and quickly, these two debtors, uh, 500 denarii and 50, that's roughly, if you round it off and and give me a little bit of grace, that's roughly like two years wages compared to two months wages. The men owe different amounts or or whoever they are. We don't know if they're men or women, but the, the, the debtors owe different amounts. But Jesus says they have one thing in common. Neither one can pay the debt. And so the one that they owe Forgives them both, cancels the debt. By the way, that word "canceled" is the same word that's translated "forgiven" in the same passage, because that's the, the, the Greek word; it means the same thing. Their debt is forgiven. Their debt is canceled. And Jesus says, "Well, which would love? Which of those two guys is going to love the one who forgave them most? The one who canceled?" the bigger debt, Jesus says, right. So that's the first way he makes the point. The second is not only does he tell the story of the two debtors, but he points to the living example of the woman who's on her feet, worshiping, pouring out her heart, moved with the love for Jesus. And he says, look at her. her. She loves much because she's been forgiven much. And then the third thing he does is at the end in verse 47, he says um, he, verse 47, he basically just states the same principle. Her sins, which are many, have been forgiven for she loved much. He who's been forgiven little loves little. The the principle is the person who's been forgiven much loves much. The person who's been forgiven little loves little. The experience, the the realization of love provokes and promotes and awakens love in response. The music is what empowers the dance. And how important is love to Christ? Love isn't just one thing in a list of the nine fruit of the Spirit, ninefold fruit of the Spirit. Love is at the heart of everything that we're called. Jesus said, when when he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love God and love your neighbor. Paul picks up on that. In Galatians, he says, what matters in the Christian life is not circumcision or uncircumcision, but faith expressing itself in love. He writes to Timothy and he says, we, I left you in Ephesus so that you can teach the, them to, to observe sound doctrine. And then he says, the goal of our love—I mean, the goal of our instruction, the goal of our teaching—is love, from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul and Jesus both say love is what fulfills the whole law. So this is what it's all—this is what it's all about. And how do you—where does love come from? Our love for God and in return for others comes from being in the kind of magnetic of his love for us or if you want to use the analogy I've been using it's from listening to the music feeling it deeply and responding to it and so in order for grace to deepen our love for Christ we have to know we've been forgiven much maybe you maybe you know that you owe God a debt that you cannot pay But maybe, just maybe for some of you, it all seems a little bit unreal to you. Years ago, I I did a sermon on the same passage, different message, but a woman came up to me after the message, and she said, I really struggle with this. It makes sense to me, but I don't feel it. She told me her story, basically she said, "I, I... I prayed to receive Jesus as my savior in Sunday school when I was nine years old in a, in a really strong church. All through my teen years, I never rebelled. I never, got, I never drank alcohol. I never smoked weed. I never did any of that. I got married as a virgin, as a very young woman. I've been an active church member ever since. And she says, it's not that I don't believe what you're saying. It's just that I don't feel that I've been forgiven for a lot. <laughs> I've been a pretty good person. And she was, you know, humanly speaking, a pretty good person. I didn't know what to say. I get a little punch drunk after preaching. If you come right up to me and start asking me a bunch of questions, it's like I just gave you everything I had for this morning. I'll try to talk to you and be coherent, but I might not. But on this particular day, I said to her, I said, I don't know exactly how to fix that, but I do know that you can go to God with that. Let's let's do this. Let's commit to pray that this year God would reveal that to you. That God would show you how deeply you actually need His grace. Now that's biblical. Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and show me if there be any unhealthy or, or any perverse, I think is what the Hebrew word actually means, way in me. And so she began to pray, and I began to pray. And um, I can't tell you all the details of her story, but in a very powerful and profound way, God answered that prayer for her and revealed. Not a particular sin that was so scandalous, but a pattern of relating to people, a way of interacting with people that was deeply self-centered and manipulative and really ugly. And could, you, you could do it for a little while and get by, but in the end, it really hurt people deeply. And it was, it was as if God just cut her open like a surgeon and showed her, even if you trusted Jesus at nine and got married at a virgin, as a virgin at 19 and have never been high in your life, you are a big sinner. And you need tremendous grace. And it awakened in her a passionate, humble, beautiful love and response. If you hear all this and it just seems like, you know, I hear that and it makes sense to me, but I don't. Would you do that? Would you pray that God would pray that prayer of Psalm 139 that God would show you the depth of your need? One of the things she would tell you. In fact, I ran into her just this week and I remembered it because I was going to share this message. And I said, you know, this happened like 20 years ago. I said, that was so long ago. Did that really happen exactly the way I remember it? And she confirmed that it had and she had just that week told her her own Bible study that she leads at Christ Community Church this the same story maybe maybe that's so so maybe you're a person who doesn't really see your need for grace very clearly if so pray that prayer but maybe maybe you're a person who you see your need for grace very clearly but you don't really see the reality of grace equally clearly in other words maybe you're like the woman Or maybe you're like my friend Stephanie, and there's a lot of shame and a lot of guilt and a lot of heaviness and a deep burden, and you wonder if God can really love and accept and truly, totally, completely, absolutely forgive you for everything and just pour out, you know, the the bright, warm life-changing rays of his love and acceptance on a person like you? What you need to hear is at the end of the story, when Jesus says to the woman, go in peace. That word in the Bible, peace, it's not just like an absence of conflict. It's like it's like the, the Hebrew word shalom. It's absolute wholeness, harmony. You're, you're, there's no... Not only is there no tension or conflict, but there is absolute love, acceptance, justice, forgiveness. Everything is right. He says to the woman, your faith, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Can you believe that? Will you believe that? When we first become Christians, I want to close with kind of a, I started to say a visual, but I'm going to have to just kind of ask you to imagine it. When we first become Christians, we understand something of our sinfulness and our need for, for grace and God. But we also understand something of God's perfection and his holiness and that there's a gap between the two. And we can't bridge it. You can't work your way up to him. But into that gap comes an understanding of what we call the gospel, the cross. The cross fills that gap and spans that distance. I think we sang a song this morning that talked about spanning the distance. Jesus spans the distance between our unworthiness and God's awesome holiness and we experience grace. But here's what happens to us sometimes as Christians. As we go forward and as life goes forward, sometimes the centrality and our focus and our understanding of the gospel kind of stays static. It doesn't change. But our understanding of our own sin gets deeper. As we seek to follow Christ, we become more and more aware of that we're worse than we imagined. And at the same time, if we're in church, and we're going to Bible study, and we're reading, we're starting to learn, our understanding of the holiness of God gets bigger. And so now we've got the, the cross is still there, but there's like this gap between, you know, the cross used to span the gap between our sinfulness and God's holiness, but as we've grown, our understanding is of our sin has gotten deeper, holiness has gotten higher, and now that, that creates this like area of tension, and often what we do, you know, the heart hates that tension. So what we sometimes do is we try, one of. Uh, what I see people do is one of two things, and if neither of them work, there's a third. Number one is we try pretending. We start pretending. I think that may be what Simon was doing. He was pretending he was better than he really was. He did a lot of outward things right, but his heart was a mess. He was, he was critical of Jesus. He, he didn't like how Jesus was doing things. He was frustrated, he, he was self-righteous, judgmental towards others, but he's, pret- so he doesn't see all that for what it is, but he's pretending because he's got to find some way to close the gap. We do that too, even though we have the cross, because as we grow, it doesn't fill the gap for us. Or sometimes, instead of pretending, we try performing. We think, okay, I'm going to just really do better this year. I'm going to make some resolves. I'm going to make a list. I'm going to get an accountability partner. And all of those things are good, except none of those things bring the peace to your heart. That's not where peace is found. That's not where the music is found. The music isn't found in pretending or performing. Sometimes when both of those things fail, we just go to numbing or distracting. That's the third thing. So what do we need to do? What we need to do is we need to continually let our understanding of and focus on the cross grow bigger until it more than spans and overlaps all the gaps in our life. That's where the music comes from. You need a big view of the cross. And when I say the cross, I mean all that it represents, the love, the sacrifice, the desire for you, the reconciliation, the forgiveness, eternity, and all of that, but also God's presence in your life now that you're loved, you're accepted, and you're forgiven. And it doesn't come through your efforts, but what Jesus did. He died and rose again for us. He lived the life you should have lived for you, laid down his life on the cross for you, and rose again to be a savior. Simon, at one point, when he's upset about the touching, he says, if he was a prophet, he wouldn't do this. His problem wasn't that he was wrong, but his view wasn't big enough. He is a prophet, but he's also a savior. And the woman, Simon said, she's a sinner. She was a sinner, but she's also a woman on whom he had set his love and to whom he had given grace. And that's where the music is found. So with every struggle, every temptation, every personal upset, when the emotions rise up and you get angry or frustrated or discouraged or when you, your, your sins shame you or guilt you or when um, temptations just haunt you and are hard to resist, you're going to have to fight all those battles. But before you just start trying harder, or maybe, maybe if you want to be even more particular, as you start to try harder to enter into the battle, turn up the music and listen so that you actually can dance the dance that you're not doing you're not fighting the fight in order to get his grace but empowered and fulfilled and filled up and sustained and nourished by his grace